We have one verse this time, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29. Hebrews 11, 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. 11, 29 says, By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is true that you both spare your people, deliver your people, and at the same time you judge the enemies of your people, and they shall be judged forever and ever. Lord, this is a truth that is not understood by many of us, not really understood, not really even believed. But we pray, Lord, that we will not only understand, but believe it and have the faith to understand what your purposes are in doing so. Grant us faith and teach us not to be like any of the enemies of the people of God who are actually your enemies. Fill us with your spirit and guide us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Indeed, this one verse, by faith they passed through the Red Sea, is a very important verse which was summarized in our reading of Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, and other passages of Scripture, such as Psalm 136, summarize what actually happened when the people were delivered out of Egypt and went into the wilderness and eventually to the land of Canaan. Now, in this one verse, there, is, there are many truths that we have to unpack in verse 29. Verse 29, though it is very succinct and describes accurately the things that are true, of these events in Egypt and in the wilderness, we have to unpack it because it is easy to misunderstand or to ignore it since it is one concise statement. Now let's unpack it. The first is in saying in verse 29, by faith, by faith. We have already seen this refrain throughout this chapter, that it required faith. And this is true. To summarize what he means by faith, he is talking about true faith. He's not talking about false faith. He's not talking about temporary faith. He's talking about true faith. That's his example or his many examples throughout this whole chapter. Chapter 11, verse 1, he defines what this true faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is what true faith is. And also, verse 6, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This also is a requirement of, of knowing God. That is, we cannot know him or please him unless we come to him as he is, knowing who he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the nature of true faith, according to this chapter. And all of his examples are examples of true faith. I emphasize true faith because we will explain what false faith is, even according to this verse. It has implications. Also, in reference to true faith, faith, true faith is not conjured up within the human, within man. True faith, it comes from heaven and it descends down to the earth to some people. God chooses to give this true faith to some people on the earth throughout all time. 
We know this from Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The good work that starts in us comes from God. God began that good work, and then he perfects that good work. Philippians 1.29 reiterates this. For to you, that is the church, the Philippian church, specifically in that context, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is granted to believe in Christ, he says in Philippians 1.29. If it's granted, it's granted by God. If it's granted by God, it's a gift of God to some people. And it's a gift to his elect that makes up the church, the true church, the remnant church, the few in comparison to the many. And this was true in Philippians 1.29 of the Philippians, and it is also true throughout time for all of us. We also note that in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, the apostle says, not all have faith. Not all have faith. Evil men persecute the church of God because not all have faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. This also shows that faith, and even the kind we are describing in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, is a true gift of God's grace to some people. And those some are the elect who eventually make up the visible church, and they love Christ, they serve Christ, they keep the commandments of Christ. That's the faith that he's describing when he says, by faith they pass through the sea. Our next point is to describe and to explain who are they? Who are they when they pass through the Red Sea? Now, if we're talking about true faith, and we assume, if we interpret correctly, that these are those who possess true faith, then we have to consider, well then, who are the they who possess true faith when Moses and the people of Israel all left Egypt, went into the wilderness, crossed the sea, and then stayed in the wilderness for 40 years and eventually entered the land of Canaan 40 years after that. Who were the they? Well, I submit to you that the they he means here are the remnant, the few in comparison to the many. The few, the remnant, in comparison to the many who claimed to have faith, who demonstrated temporary faith, but not true faith, because true faith is permanent faith. I submit to you, when he says they pass through the sea, he has in mind a collection of people that are the remnant with true faith. So who would they be? Well, we know the names of some of them. We know the names of some of them, such as Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Hur, Joshua, Caleb, Eleazar, and Ithamar. We know these names, the, the, the names of those who demonstrated by their faith, by their obedience, they demonstrated that they were a part of the people of God. They did not disobey, they did not grumble, they did not practice sin like all the other people. At least in this case, when he says they pass through the sea, he has these individuals in mind. Now, there may have been many others, others in the, in the population generally, but he doesn't mention them. And 
He doesn't mention them or imply that, and we will see later. He doesn't even imply the rest of the population generally because he has already allotted to them or given them over to unbelief and disobedience. We will see that. So we have established now that the they he has in mind are those who have true faith. No one can doubt that individuals such as Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and Caleb were individuals who possessed true faith, true enduring faith, not that they were perfect their, their whole life or after their conversion, but they demonstrated true faith, they lived a life of righteousness and obedience, this is the way they were. These individuals, they were a part of the remnant that our apostle has in mind here. Now, if this is the case, we need to explore and spend some more time on false faith. False faith. The reason being, based on a verse like this one, some interpreters of this verse conclude, wrongly conclude, that all the people, all of the millions of people under the hand of Moses that left Egypt and went into the wilderness that crossed the sea, that all of those individuals, every single one of them, or the vast majority of them, they were believers. They were truly saved from their sins. And when they died, they actually went to heaven. That is a common interpretation, that all of the people under Moses' leadership, whether they died in the wilderness or not, they were actually true believers, even though they had many times of disobedience and grumbling. They rebelled, yes, but they went to heaven. They may have had salvation, lost salvation, had it, and then lost it. But eventually, either the vast majority of them, they would go to heaven, but maybe a few of them actually went to hell. That is a very common interpretation based on a misunderstanding of this verse, Hebrews 11.29, but also some of the other verses that we will see in just a moment. They believe that these people had true faith. Let me demonstrate to you that the vast majority of the people that the, the apostle calls all in Hebrews, that they actually were unbelievers and eventually went to hell. Let's see this. Firstly, let's demonstrate from Exodus chapter 14 that the scripture indeed does say that these people in um, and among the people of Israel, that they had faith. They had faith. Exodus 14, Exodus 14, verse 31, 14, 31, the last verse. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, it says, and in his servant Moses. They feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. There's no denying that they feared God, and they believed in God. That's what the text says. But then the question is, did they have a true fear of God, a true, lasting, enduring, salvific fear of God? And also, did they have a true, lasting, salvific belief in God, or faith in God? And the answer to that is no. The answer is no. How can we know from this very passage? Remember in Exodus 14, the people in verses 10 to 
to 12, they complain and murmur to Moses that they are at the sea and the Egyptians are behind them. And they said to, to Moses, we should have just lived in Egypt and obeyed the Egyptians for the rest of our lives. Why did you bring us out here to die here in this miserable way? The Egyptians are going to attack us, and if we go forward, we're going to just run into the sea. Either way, we're dead. Why did you do this, Moses? They don't believe. They don't believe at all. And so they, they complain against Moses. So they complain, but after they were delivered, it says they feared and they believed. Now, should they, or, or, or did they, continue with this fear and belief for the rest of their lives. Let's see what Moses says about the people under his charge. Let's continue and read in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. After they crossed the sea, now they are in the wilderness, and the 12 spies go to the land of Canaan. 10 of the spies return and give a demoralizing report to the rest of the military of the 600,000 soldiers. The 10 give a bad report and demoralize their comrades, their colleagues in the, the army. They do so. So the 600,000 plus, they are demoralized and they say, we're not gonna go, we're not gonna be able to defeat our enemies. Only two, Joshua and Caleb said, no, no. The Lord has promised this. We believe in what the Lord says. And the Lord's power is greater than the Canaanites' power, and we're going to be able to defeat the Canaanites. Now, what happened as a consequence? Let's notice. Numbers 14, we are describing the rebellion and unbelief of the people under Moses. Verse 1, then all the congregation, and notice this phrase. We will see this several times. All the congregation, not just a few, not just a few malcontents, not just a few unbelievers, but all the congregation. This is emphasized. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept at night. And all the sons of Israel, all the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is their rebellion. And notice verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. They fall on their faces and they plead with God and with the people to stop. But what did the people do? Verse 10. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now they want to put to death Moses and Aaron. The people, all the congregation decided that this is what they needed to do. God intervenes in a miraculous way. God intervenes and threatens to destroy all of them and make a nation of Moses. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? They are this people, he doesn't say my people, and he says they spurn me, they disdain me, they 
They are against me. They despise me. How long will they not believe in me? God is basically tired of their unbelief. Unbelief since when? Unbelief, at least since the time Moses approached them and first approached the leaders and said, the Lord has appointed me to deliver you from Egypt. At least from that time, they haven't believed. How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed? Continue down to verse 22. Verse 22. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. All the men put God to the test these ten times. And I don't think these ten times is necessarily literal, but he's using a, a figure of speech to say, all of these times I gave you full and ample evidence that you should believe in me and you haven't. Certainly the ten times might be the ten miracles of Egypt, but whatever the case, there were more than ten miracles. There were at least 14 before they entered the wilderness because there were the ten plagues, there were the three miracles that Moses was given to perform for the people to believe, and even for Pharaoh, and also the, the 14th was crossing the Red Sea. They saw all of this and they still didn't believe. And now, verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? He calls them an evil congregation manifested by their grumbling. So then he says in verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation. All this evil congregation. 36. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land. Even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. That is, the ten spies who came back with the bad report, they died immediately by a plague. The rest of them died over 40 years in the wilderness. And God says of them, all this evil congregation who refuse to believe. Then, 40 years later, 40 years later, Moses, he comments on all of these incidents. Deuteronomy chapter 1. The span of time between the events of the book of Exodus and the events or the sermons of the book of Deuteronomy are 40 years. At the beginning of the 40 years are the events of Exodus. At the end of the 40 years, just before Moses dies, is the writing of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Moses describes what had happened. Even though God took care of them, verse 32, Deuteronomy 1, 32. But for all this, after all God did for them, you did not trust the Lord your God. You did not trust the Lord your God. Verse 35. Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your forefathers. Not one, this evil congregation. Deuteronomy chapter 9, 
Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. 9, 7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. From the time they left Egypt, that Passover night, from that time until this day that Moses is about to die, for 40 years, he's saying, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Verse 23, Deuteronomy 9, 23. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, you neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. From the day Moses knew these people, he said, you have been rebellious. Rebellious. Now, I think that this has to include 80, uh, 80 years. Because when Moses was 40 years old, he went out in Exodus 2 to the people because he assumed they understood that it was time for Moses to deliver them. But they didn't understand. And so Moses, on the threat of death, he fled into the land of Midian and lived there for 40 years. So they didn't, they didn't submit to Moses when Moses was 40 years old. And then when he was 80 years old, he returns to Egypt and he lives with them and delivers them out of Egypt and lives with them in the wilderness for another 40 years. So I think Moses is saying, you have been rebellious. You people as a nation have been rebellious from the day I knew you for 80 years. It doesn't matter whether it's your father or your grandfather or you, the son. You all have been rebellious against the Lord. Now, is this interpretation consistent with the book of Hebrews? Because this is our passage, right? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And let's see what the apostle says to us by the Holy Spirit about this wilderness generation. This generation under Moses. Hebrews 3 verse 7. Does he think that they were believers or unbelievers? Was God happy with them or was God angry with them? Hebrews 3 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see there, God speaking through David the prophet about 500 years, four to 500 years after the exodus from Egypt, David is the one who writes this psalm, Psalm 95. The apostle quotes David reflecting on what happened in Moses' time. And what happened according to David the prophet and the Spirit of God? What happened? He's warning his contemporaries not to harden their hearts. Don't harden your hearts just as 
your forefathers did in the wilderness. Don't do that. In fact, they saw my works, miraculous works, signs, for 40 years. For 40 years, they provoked God, had a hard heart. For 40 years, the passage says. Therefore, 10, I was angry. And he says in verse 10, they always go astray. Not sometimes, but they always go astray. They don't have a new heart. They have not been born again. They always go astray, he says. And because of this, and that they did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There is no rest, meaning no eternal rest, for those souls, because God was wrathful or angry against them for their rebellion for all those years. Further notice verse 16. 3.16 For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. What is he telling us? Who provoked God? Who irritated God to anger and wrath against them? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Did we not read in Numbers 14? All the congregation, all the sons of Israel, all the men, all this evil congregation? We read that, and that's what he's talking about right here. All of them. And when he says all, of course he's excluding Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and Caleb. He's excluding some, but he is not minimizing the fact that the vast majority of the people, the vast majority of the people provoke God. God was angry with them for 40 years. They sinned, and God's displeasure with them was that they, their bodies died in the wilderness God swore they would not enter his rest. They are described as disobedient and unbelief and unbelievers. Because of their unbelief, they disobeyed and God punished them. So what does this tell us? This tells us through these examples that it's possible and it is actually customary that there are many people who demonstrate temporary, false, fictional uh, faith they don't have true faith. They don't have true faith because they're not believing correctly about the gospel, about the person and work of Christ, and they, their faith does not manifest itself in holiness, in obedience, in righteousness, in love of the truth, in the fear of God, in the love of God, in the love of neighbor. It does not manifest itself that way. Therefore, it's a fickle, a false, and a fleeting kind of faith. And that's what the vast majority of people had, even though they experienced the gracious blessings of being delivered from Egypt, being delivered from the sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them, even though God miraculously provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years, provided food for millions of people in the wilderness, in a desert, barren place for 40 years, 
and even gave them victory over the Canaanites and the inheritance of the land of Canaan. It's possible for people to have this kind of fickle and fleeting faith. And when it is that way, we must, we must be aware that that is the case, and we must ask ourselves, are we like Moses, or are we like Achan? Wasn't Achan, remember Joshua chapter 7, wasn't he a man of Israel? Yes. Wasn't he from one of the tribes of Israel? Yes. Wasn't he one of those who experienced the blessings in the wilderness? And wasn't he a contemporary of Joshua when Joshua was conquering the land of Canaan? But was he a believer? No. He was not a believer because he stole some of the plunder and he hid some of the plunder and then it was exposed and then he and his family were all put to death. All of them put to death. Which one are we? Are we like Moses or are we like Achan? Are we like Moses or are we like Rahab who believed, repented and believed? The next point that we have to establish in our passage has to do with the miracles of the Red Sea. The miracles of the Red Sea. Notice it says that they passed through the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is a body of water there, east of Egypt. It's a body of water, and they, the way that Moses took them by the will of God, they had to have this dilemma presented to them. They had to have this sea in front of them because God wanted to demonstrate this great passage through the sea. Remember, this is the 14th miracle, at least the 14th miracle that the whole congregation saw. The 14th. Not one. And it wasn't done in a corner, but they saw 14 miracles. And at least 11 of the 14 were in public view, were displayed in the presence of millions of people. Not only millions of the people of Israel, but millions of the people of Egypt. They all saw this. They all saw this. So what is God showing us here? God is certainly showing us by typology that we go from a place of slavery to a place of freedom. That is slavery from sin and freedom in Christ. He who commits sin is the slave of sin. But if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's what Egypt and Canaan typify. That is, we are redeemed from our sins and now we are obligated, we are slaves of Christ, and if we are slaves of Christ, that's freedom. Because Christ is a slave to no man. He's not obligated to no man. And whatever Christ does, he does freely. He does graciously. And when we submit to him, that is true freedom. The scripture is teaching us that too. But it's also teaching us through the Red Sea that it is possible for people to see many miracles and those miracles not move them an inch, not even move them a millimeter in the right direction. It is possible for people to see the manifestation of the grace of God, the goodness of God, and it not move them at all. Not at all. We know this to be the case in Luke, Luke chapter 16. Please turn to Luke 16, 
We have here the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he is a contemporary of Lazarus. And if this Lazarus is a contemporary of John the Baptist in Christ, notice what it says here. Luke 16 and verse 27. The rich man is in Hades. He's in torment. He's being punished. And he said, verse 27, 16, 27, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. What's the point? The point being made is that there is no miracle going to move anybody if he refuses to listen to the word of God, to Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to be persuaded by the true words of God, the Holy Spirit, here in the Bible, don't expect and don't insist, well, God, you must do a miracle before they believe. You must turn water into wine, or you must make a few fish and loaves of bread able to feed a multitude. You must silence the sea. You must calm the ocean. You must do this or that. Then so-and-so will believe. The Bible says, no, that's not the way it works. They passed through the Red Sea, but it was for the purpose of illustrating to the elect, to the chosen, the way of salvation. It is not true that they will believe. Turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 on how they will not believe, even though miracles occur. By the, the, this point in the book of Revelation chapter 9, he has described many miracles as already having occurred. And even miracles or punishments, even things that are unpleasant, these things have occurred. And notice what he says in 9.20. And the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons, and the idols of gold and of silver, and of brass, and of stone and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. They had these plagues demonstrated right before their very eyes. And what happened? They refused to repent. The miracles were not moving them. They refused repentance. Furthermore, furthermore, why is it that they passed through the sea, the one group benefited and the other group did not benefit. Because it says that the Egyptians also attempted it, but were drowned. The Egyptians attempted it, but were drowned. Well, I thought God was infinitely loving and patient and kind, and that he would never do such a thing to anybody. He would never drown people why would he drown people? Why would he drown uh, Pharaoh? And why would he drown his army? 
Instead, why wouldn't he be long-suffering? Why wouldn't he let them go through and maybe try to convince them on the other side of the sea, hey, let's strike a deal. Let's do it a better way. Quit pursuing Israel, and I will bless you ten times back in Egypt, so just leave Israel alone. God didn't propose anything like that. Why was it that God actually drew them into that sea on dry shod? He drew them into the sea, and then he engulfed them and drowned them all. Why did he do that? Why? Because God makes a distinction between his people and those who are still sons of the devil. God always makes a distinction between who the true believers are and who the bogus believers are. He makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The Bible is always doing this, making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. We have Cain and we have Abel. We have Jacob and we have Esau. We have the 11 disciples and we have Judas Iscariot. We can go on and on with the many biblical examples of distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. And that's what God is showing us here. That His Word, His miracles, the revelation of His person, His nature, His attributes to the people produce these two basic results. These two basic results. This is what God always does. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2.14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Here the apostle says he doesn't peddle the word of God to ensure that if he has an audience of a hundred people, that by hook or crook, by carnival or clown show, that he makes sure that the 100 people actually believe in the gospel. That he tries to woo them and persuade them by his trickery and deceitful scheming to make them believe in the gospel. He says he is content with this privilege, this divinely granted privilege to preach the word, and for some, it's an aroma of Christ from life to life, but for others, from death to death. They have death in them, the unbelievers, and they continue in that death, and it gets worse and worse for them. Paul the Apostle says this. This is the way of the preaching of the gospel of Christ, not just what God did to Israel and Egypt. This also happens in the gospel of Christ. There are these two basic outcomes. Furthermore, we learn from these two basic outcomes that there are different responses, different responses to the gospel. Different responses to the gospel. Let's first see that some people will mock and ridicule it. Mock and ridicule it. Acts chapter 17. 
Acts chapter 17. Paul preaches to a, a bunch of philosophers and those who love to share new ideas about life and philosophy and religion. And he's preaching to them and says the following, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having first proved to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Notice the different responses. Some sneered, some mocked and ridiculed what the apostle preached. Others said, we're going to hear you again. We shall hear you again. And then a few believed and followed. Different responses. Another different response. Notice in chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, verse 24. 24, 24. We have a Roman official named Felix. A Roman official named Felix. Acts 24, 24. And some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was preceded, uh, or succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Notice here that this Felix, who has married a Jewish, a Jewish wife, so he knows better. He knows better because she would have known some things and taught her husband some things. Now he's listening to Paul speak of faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And when he hears about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, that there is a day of judgment, what does he do? He becomes frightened. He becomes frightened, and how does he deal with his fright? He says, go away. Please go away for a while. For the present, he says, go away for the present, and when I find time, when I find time, I'll find time somehow. You know, you have more time on your hands than I do. I don't have time. I don't have time to think about the things of God, to read the Word of God. I will summon you. Now, we know that this was a farce. Felix was a farce here. We know he was fraudulent in his statement because of what it says in 26 and 27. He became frightened, so he dismisses Paul. He doesn't want to hear it again. He walks away from it. But then it says he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him, hoping that Paul would be a shyster just like he was a shyster. 
that Paul would give him some money, a bribe, and say, listen, listen, Felix, I'll give you this money, just let me loose. I don't want to be in prison anymore, just let me loose. But Paul refused to do that. And that happened for two years. And Paul still maintained his faith, and Felix never did. Never did put faith in Christ. After two years, he says, yeah, yeah, I'll think about it later. I'll summon you, but for the present, I'm not going to think about it. For the present, I'm not going to think about it means I never want to think about it. Get away from me, and if I ever do see you, let's talk about money. Not the master, but money. That was really on Felix's mind. And this is the way of unbelief. Different responses to the gospel. And the worst of them all was, as we read in Revelation 9, 20-21, they see displayed before their very eyes, and yet they refuse to repent. And actually, in chapter 16 of Revelation, not only do they refuse to repent, but it says they blaspheme God. They blaspheme God. They slandered Him to His face. They spited Him and hated God. They openly did so. And some will do that as well. What you, we learn then by this passage. Let's have true faith. Not false faith. Don't be pretentious. Firstly, from your heart, desire to know God and please Him, to love Him and fear Him. May it be true of each of us. And if we may be one of those who have false faith, or even be like the Egyptians, may that never be true of any of us. May we repent, may we believe, may we have this true faith that we might have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, be in the presence of Christ forever. There is nothing more sweet, sweeter than that, nothing better than that. To know Christ and to follow Him from this day forward. Amen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.